Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to All the Books a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 317, and today we are talking about books being released on June 29th, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Patricia Elsie Tuttle, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Patricia, it's a twofer this month. I know, and also I was the backlist for last week, so it's just like me in everyone's ears three times in a row. That's pretty awesome. So we are going to do something a little different today. Not like super different. We're going to talk about books, but this is the fifth Tuesday of June. There were there were five of them, and I could not find anything that I liked. <laughs> uh, and so I asked the the powers that be if it would be all right if we just kind of talked about whatever we wanted today, because I think like listeners like to hear about books, whether they're actually coming out today or not, you know, as long as you're getting bookish information shoved straight into your brain, it works. And we, we do have a couple of picks that are out today, but absolutely. I'm all over the place. Like, like when we started, you're like, you have some things. I don't even remember what you said, but you were like, you got some stuff going on today. It's like, yeah, I do. It felt good though, you know, because it was stressing me out. Like I was like, I cannot find a book that I like for today. You know, and we were talking earlier, there are some days where I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to possibly choose because there are so many Mm -hmm. books I want to talk about on a single day. And so it makes sense that there are other days, you know, that maybe there's not too much. Like you said, I have a couple that come out today that I'm really excited about. So yeah, yeah, I don't want to be so confined by dates that I'm going to be talking about things that I am not 100% behind. You know, like, I don't I don't feel good about that. So I'd rather just do this. So I got up today, knowing that like, I I didn't have to stress out anymore about what we were going to talk about tonight, like when we recorded. And so I've just been doing my work. I was listening to Concrete Blonde all day. I was so happy. Like, sometimes I put music on that I haven't listened to in forever, and I was like, why do I ever listen to anything else? So I was like, why do I ever listen to anything else besides Concrete Blonde? So great. It was such a great day. Oh, I love them. (laughs) I am so bad at listening to new music. Yeah. And so, like, not only do I listen to, like, 80s, 90s, etc. But I grew up in my grandparents' household and they listened to a lot of Bossa Nova. So Bossa Nova is frequently on in our apartment or like swing music or like, so it's not only I'm listening to stuff that's like 30 to 40 years old. I'm listening to stuff from like the middle of last century. That's cool. Yeah, I don't I don't know much about new music. I usually find it like four to ten years later. I'll be like, hey, have you guys heard this? They're like, yes. And no one <laughs> listens to that anymore. I'm like, oh, I like it. I like it. 
I think, what did I discover last year? Which was, oh yes, the Airborne Toxic event, which was unfortunate to find during the middle of a pandemic. Um, I had never heard them before, but I heard the song. I was like, I really like the song. And they're like, yeah, that's like five, six, seven years old. I'm like, well, okay. It's new to me. <laughs> we went on, uh, my wife and I had to take a long drive a couple of months ago and we had put on Pandora on like a, a 90s station and we had, I guess I had failed to realize how many one hit wonders there were because I was driving. So I wasn't looking at the screen that was playing the music, but every other song I was like, is this blues traveler? And my wife's like, no, that's not blues traveler. Is this blues traveler? Like every other song. And so like, that's our new joke. Like if we hear a song that we don't know who it is, we're like, is this blues traveler? So. Well, your first hint is if there's no harmonica, it's not Blues Traveler. Ah. <laughs> That's all I know. But if there is harmonica, it could be either Blues Traveler or Boy George. Okay. I'm going to have to trust you on that one. <laughs> oh, yes. Boy George was big on the harmonica. Oh, yes, of course. Culture. Yes, of course. I'm, I'm hearing it now in my head. Before we continue this pop culture explosion <laughs> conversation, uh, we are going to hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so it's funny that we're talking about music because I have so much more to say about pop culture and all these things. I might give you a little glimpse like what it's like to be inside my brain later. It's going to be scary. So I hope everyone's wearing their seatbelt. 
So I am actually going to talk about a book, though, first, before before I do that. Uh, my first pick today is called Chunky by Yehudi Mercado. It came out last week, and it's a delightful middle-grade graphic memoir. The illustrations are so cute, and it's brightly colored, and I loved it. It's about Yehudi's own life, the, the author. Uh, his bio says he's a former pizza delivery driver and art director for Disney Interactive and is now a writer-artist-director living in Los Angeles. And he just does, like, all these amazing things. He's part of all these Disney illustrated books. And he has, like, a signed photo from J.J. Abrams that says, you know, you're the best. And he's just, he's so cool. So this is his life with a sort of, a bit of a supernatural twist uh, about when he was in middle school. And he went by Hootie. And he grew up in a middle-class Mexican Jewish family in Texas. He had two sisters. And he was a really, like, happy go lucky funny kid he was he was like to make jokes and have a good time and when he was young he had a severe health problem there was something happening in one of his lungs and and he had to have one of his lungs removed uh, he had a i think it's called a lobectomy is what it what it was um and so his parents always fret over him they worry about his weight because he's overweight and they they constantly like pick at him and you know you're eating too much or you know you're not getting enough exercise and the doctors, at the beginning of this, he goes to the doctor again, and they say, you know, you're overweight. And so his parents decide to sign him up for sports, even though he's not really that interested in playing sports. He just wants to make people laugh. But they sign him up. I think it's a baseball first. And he, he kind of has fun with it, though, because he has his very own mascot, Chunky, who is his invisible friend. He's a little red monster who cheers him on and tells him what a great job he's doing and how awesome he is all the time. And they have a great time joking around together. And it's really, it's really funny. Like, like Chunky shows up and he's like, hey, you know, uh, I'm your invisible buddy. I'm going to be your invisible mascot. And, and Hootie's kind of like, cool. And, and Chunky's like, you're taking this really well for somebody who just found out like you have an invisible friend. And, and then like later on, he goes to, to talk to his parents and Chunky follows him and he's like, wait, is this one of those deals where only I can see you? And Chunky's like, yeah. He's like, okay, cool. Just wanted to check. And, you're like, it, and he talks to him and, and they're very funny. So he plays baseball, soccer, swimming, tennis, football. He keeps getting injured. Uh, he's not he's not very good at these sports. Uh, he, you know, he like one of those things where like he accidentally makes a goal because the ball bounces off his head and he keeps ending up at the hospital because he hurts his foot and he hurts his finger and... They just keep moving him to the next sport, um, and he's not losing weight. His mother is; it keeps nagging him. She's always talking about dieting and body image. It's very unhealthy. And the same kids that are like mean to him are on all these teams. But he really doesn't like let it, let it get him down. Even though he'd rather join the drama club and be on stage making people laugh, he's really big into Saturday Night Live. He wants to host Saturday Night Live. And then what happens is after several different sports, he becomes accepted into this group of boys uh, and they want to hang out. And but they're like really into like shooting imaginary guns and playing war and just kind of changing Hootie. He's kind of lying and like about who he is to these boys because he wants them to like him. And Chunky, his, his invisible friend, he doesn't like this change in Hootie, you know, and, and to make matters worse, his father loses his job and has to travel for a new job right when Hootie is starting football. And now he's looking up to his football coach and he's changing even more and not in a good way. It's just, it's such a great book. It's great for kids to read about uh, being true to yourself 
and kindness and, you know, positive body image. I do want to give content warnings for bullying and disordered eating, but it's just so charming. I absolutely loved it. And it's listed as Chunky number one, so I wonder if there's going to be a follow-up. I would like that very much. It's called Chunky by Yehudi Mercado. Cool. And that was a graphic novel, you said? Yeah, it's it's like aimed at middle grade, but perfect for everyone, of course. Yeah, I love that. I also have a graphic novel for my first pick. It is Poison Ivy, Thorns by Cody Keplinger, illustrated by Sarah Kippen. This graphic novel came out at the beginning of June, but I definitely wanted to talk about it on the show. I didn't know how much I needed queer gothic horror in my life until I read this book, which is an alternate origin story for the DC Comics baddie, Poison Ivy. We start with our protagonist, Pamela. Clearly, by how she looks, we know that this is the teenager that will become Poison Ivy. In her town, there is a large green space, like a park with a small forest that she is trying to save from being deforested and turned into a shopping mall. So she's probably done all kinds of protests and stuff like that, and it hasn't been working. So she releases some chemicals into the forest that create a toxic gas that is harmful to anyone who goes near. So we learn right away that she got these chemicals from her father's lab. Her father is a doctor and a very, very controlling and secretive man. They live in a big, dark, dramatic manner, just the two of them, that has really creepy noises in it. Pamela's mother is a botanist off on a research trip, and Pamela's father keeps insisting that Pamela help him in his lab with his research because it seems really unsettling because he doesn't like it's not clear what his research is but we do know whatever it is it's making Pamela sick and have really bad reactions. Pamela is in high school and seems to have one friend Alice though what gets most of Pamela's attention is the large greenhouse at the high school that was donated by her mother. Also at the school is Brett, who was Pamela's homecoming date and a grade A piece of garbage and just total sexual harassment every time this guy's around. He keeps trying to get Pamela to hook up with him, and when she consistently turns him down, he starts rumors. And Pamela's friend Alice sticks up for her very frequently. Well, Alice and her family had to evacuate their home near the park because of this mysterious toxic gas that I mentioned earlier. Alice goes to stay with Pamela and her father in their mansion with all its creepy noises and dark secrets. As you can imagine, it's hard to keep family secrets with someone else in the home. The artwork is really great, and I love the contrast between all of the dark muted colors and then the burst of red that is Pamela's hair or the incredibly bright green that shows up from time to time. Content warnings for an abusive parent and sexual harassment. This book was such a welcome break from the vast amount of nonfiction that I tend to read, and I really enjoyed it. It's Poison Ivy, Thorns by Cody Keplinger, illustrated by Sarah Kippen. All right. So my next pick is a work of nonfiction. It actually came out in April of 2020, and I feel like it got lost in all the beginning of the pandemic news, and it just came out in paperback a couple months ago. 
It's really, really good. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Loss, Love, and the Hidden Order of Life by Lulu Miller. I'm talking about it today because I just read it last week, so it is new to me, fresh in my mind, and I wanted to tell you about it because I'm playing it fast and loose today. Woohoo! So I'm like more excited about the fact that I'm going unstructured today than really anything else. It's just like this is what passes for exciting in my life. So this is Why Fish Don't Exist. And it is a bio slash memoir. Lulu Miller's father was a scientist. And when she was young, she asked him all these questions about the world and nature. And he kind of believed in chaos theory. You know, he told her as a young child, as a very young child, uh, nothing that we do matters and nothing makes sense. There's no point to any of it, Uh, which is a lot when you're a small child for the person you admire to lay on you. And so, but she still, she grew up loving nature. She looked up to him, but she, you know, had a hard time understanding the universe because, you know, her father was like, nothing matters. Who cares? You know, she had an older sister who got bullied a lot. Uh, She was was very unhappy. She was depressed a lot as a teenager. And then later in life, she goes through this bad breakup and she starts looking for meaning in something. And she discovers this man from history named David Starr Jordan. He was a taxonomist who was born in the late 19th century, uh, and he is credited with discovering over one-fifth of all the different fish in the world, like, that we know about. That's a lot of fish. There are a lot of different kinds of fish. And this man would travel all over the place, and he would bring home species of them and label them and keep them in jars. He loved nature. He loved order. He loved learning about, like, when he was a kid, he would learn about all the different flowers and the different plants and the different animals. He just loved order. And this is like the opposite of what her father was teaching her. Like, here is a guy who wanted to know everything and keep track of it. And he was the first president of Stanford, which was something I didn't know. Uh, I I mean, I I know of the school, but I, I had no idea that this guy, this famous taxonomist was Stanford's first president. You know, when he lived in California, uh, he had a wife, and he had children, and then his wife passed away, and one of his children passed away, and then he got remarried and had more children, and, you know, because there was a lot of illness back then, so a few of his children passed away from fevers and illness, and he kept getting knocked down, but he just got back up. Uh, First, he lost some of his collection to lightning uh, and fire, and then eventually, in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, all of his specimens at Stanford fell and collapsed, like thousands of jars of his specimens just smashed all over the floor. And he got people to run hoses over them for two straight days while he sat there and grabbed the labels from the jars and sewed them directly back onto the fish and put them in new jars. Like that was what he needed to do instead of being like, I give up. This is a mess. I don't know what to do. That's how he fixed it. And like I said, learning about, you know, David Sarah Jordan sort of brought order to Lulu Miller's life, and she was really invested in learning about him. And then things take a dark turn. Dun, dun, dun. I cannot spoil anything for you because you need to find this out for yourself, but I'm just going to say that David Sarah Jordan ends up being the villain of his own story. Because we know, like, people in history did great things, also can be bad people. They're not mutually exclusive. And in the end, Lulu Miller seeks to learn more about the harm that he caused in the world and sort of finds peace in learning about his undoing, which is very vague. It's a very vague thing to say. Very sorry, but I don't want to give anything away. Just that this book was incredible. So many people in history, you know, have these 
you know, backstories where like they did these great things, but they were also just terrible, terrible humans. I do want to give content warnings, which there are a lot of them, uh, but I want to give content warnings for mentions of racism, ableism, sexism, terminal illness, attempted suicide, sexual assault, forced sterilization, homophobia, gaslighting, and death. It is called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Lost Love and the Hidden Order of Life by Lulu Miller. I am so happy you talked about that book because it keeps staring at me whenever I go down to the bookstore, like I keep seeing it and I'm like, hmm, this looks, this looks interesting, but. Yeah, it's, it's so good. It it was Jamie who works with us at Book Riot. She read it a few weeks ago and was like, you have to read this, you have to read this, you have to read this. And I was like, yeah, yeah, when I get it. And then it was one of those things where turns out I already had it. (laughs) So I was like, oh, hey, look, I'll read this. Excellent. For my next pick, I have She Memes Well by Quinta Brunson. Full disclosure, I am about 75% through this book, but I have not yet finished reading it. So my recommendation is based on what I've read so far, which I've really enjoyed. Woo, we're unstructured today. It's fine. <laughs> I know, it's... <laughs> Wee! Um, girls Sorry. Gone Mild. Um, <laughs> so this book actually came out on June 15th. If you don't recognize Quinta Brunson's name, you would probably recognize her face or voice. If you are a person who has been on the internet at all in the past half dozen years, then you've likely seen or heard one of Quinta Brunson's many hilarious viral videos, many of which were from her time working at BuzzFeed. I have a soft spot in my reading heart for memoirs by comedians. I've read so many from favorite comics from Margaret Cho to Aisha Tyler to Joe Coy. Actually, I think I even talked about Joe Coy's earlier this year on this show. Well, I'm adding Quinta Brunson's book to this beloved list of mine. What's different about Brunson's memoir is that it still feels like she hasn't peaked yet. I mean, she's amazing and has done awesome things, but I can't wait to see what she does next. She's only in her early 30s, which pops up in the book during the parts where she talks about pop culture things, films, music, etc. that are meaningful to her. Brunson grew up in Philly, and she writes a lot about her family and upbringing. Her elementary and high school experiences were really remarkable in ways that, one, don't exist anymore, and two, ways I can't even fathom having access to when I was in school. Her education experiences really shaped who she is and what remains important in her personal life. One of the most relatable parts of her book for me is when she talks about the culture shock of moving from Philly to Los Angeles. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, but I went to college in LA and I lived in LA for years and the scene down there is unique and so are the people, especially if they work in entertainment. A big theme of this memoir is around Brunson staying true to who she is, what she stands for, and the family she came from. It also differs from other comedian memoirs for me in that it's mostly positive, I guess, and mostly lighthearted, where a lot of comedian memoirs kind of throw you off because they get really dark really fast. And it makes you think that someone has to have this darkness in order to be so funny. And this book kind of proves otherwise. 
It's a really strong first memoir, and there are definitely some moments where I've laughed out loud. I'm really enjoying it so far. It's She Memes Well by Quinta Brunson. All right. I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah. Like, I kept looking at the title. This is my brain sometimes needs a little time to catch up. I kept looking at the title, and then when you said it out loud, like, she memes well, I'm like, oh, like, she means well. I get it. <laughs> like, like, when I was just looking at it written out, I was like, she memes well. Okay. But, yeah. So, moving on. Uh, my next pick is a book that I have not read. I actually just got a proof for it a couple of hours ago, which, unfortunately, might have been enough time for me to read it before we recorded, but I had other <laughs> things to do. <laughs> but it gives me a chance to talk about zombies, because zombies are not a thing that we talk about a lot on the show. It is called Eat Your Heart Out by Kelly Devos, and it is out today. Uh, it's a YA zombie novel about a group of teens battling zombies at camp. The main character is named Vivian Ellenshaw. Like I said, I haven't read this, and this is all, I'm just gleaning all this from the the description. She goes by V. She is mad because she is being sent to a weight loss camp called Camp Featherlight uh, at the start of the book. And when she arrives, the camp is in Flagstaff, Arizona, and it's the worst blizzard in the history of Arizona, which is weird in itself, a giant blizzard in Arizona. But from the start, things don't feel right. Uh, And then a camper goes missing. And then V thinks she sees someone out in the snow, someone not human. And soon it is a battle to stay alive. Uh, Like I said, I haven't read it, but obviously content warnings for disordered eating and body shaming. But uh, zombies, I love zombies. My favorite zombie books are probably The Reapers Are the Angels by Alden Bell, which is 10 or 15 years old now. And Zone One by Colson Whitehead. I love his zombie novel. I love all of his books. Each one is different. So he does have a zombie novel, which is pretty great. Uh, There's also one of my other favorites is The Forest of Hands and Teeth by Carrie Ryan, which secretly I call Love Means Never Having to Say You're Sorry for Trying to Eat Your Brains. And there's (laughs) a really great zombie uh, miniseries that I love. I I haven't watched a lot of zombie movies, but I'm just going to go off now about zombies and TV. There's this really great miniseries that came out in 2008 on the BBC, I think it was like five episodes, called Dead Set, about this Big Brother-type reality show where these contestants are all like locked in this fancy apartment together, but outside, a zombie apocalypse has happened, and like everyone is a zombie, but the people inside the house don't know. They're the only ones left alive. It's really fun. Ariza Med is in it, who is... Oh, I'm so excited to hear that. He's going to be in... The Obama's production, they're producing uh, Exit West by uh, Mohsin Hamid for Netflix, which is exciting. Warren Brown is also in Dead Set, who plays DS Justin Ripley on Luther, which is one of my favorite shows. And just thinking about poor Justin Ripley makes me want to cry. Um, and Andy Nyman is also in it, who is in one of my favorite horror movies. Now we're moving on to horror movies now, called <laughs> Severance, which is not the dystopian novel that came out a few years ago, but this is like an older horror movie about this group of people that go on a work retreat in the middle of the European mountains and someone starts murdering them. Um, It's really, really graphic and really, really bananas, and I loved it. Uh, It also has Toby Stevens, who is like the handsomest man on earth and is in Black Sails, which I've never seen, but I probably should watch because I think like a pirate show is probably pretty good. Also, did you know that Toby Stevens is Maggie Smith's son? Like Maggie Smith, most recently Wait, of Downton Abbey, right? Really? Yeah, really. I just learned that recently. 
And let's see. Oh, and Laura Harris is in Severance, who was Daisy in Dead Like Me. This is what goes on in my head all the time, like when I'm watching TV. <laughs> this little peek into Liberty's head where yeah. it's like that meme of but- the guy, the red string. <laughs> and the, yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, so so Dead Like Me, which was a fantastic show that was on Showtime many, many years ago. Brian Fuller's first show, his first of many doomed series, because like his first few series only lasted like one or two seasons, including Wonder Falls, which is a great series, and Pushing Daisies, which oh, the best. Um, I think his adaptation of The Munsters didn't even make it to TV, maybe made like a couple of episodes. Um, he also did the pilot for the amazing screw on head cartoon which was only one episode but is like my favorite 22 minutes of television ever um i have an amazing screw on head tattoo like i love that Uh, and then he did hannibal which lasted for like four seasons and now getting back to books he's doing a remake of christine by stephen king which is you know so that was fun (laughs) it's like releasing a pressure valve i'm just like all this information comes out of my head and i feel so much better (laughs) you were mentioning zombie books i haven't read too many zombie books but i remember one that had come out by a writer who i used to be at a nonprofit with and it was came out like 10 years ago and it was the panama laugh oh i don't know this one It was so creepy because once you got bit by a zombie, as you were turning, you would start laughing like this incredibly creepy, like they're laughing zombies. So it has like laughing zombies (laughs) and like pirates and like it's. um, Yeah, it looks bananas. It was a fun one. Oh, well, I have to I'll have to put that on my list because laughing zombies. (laughs) <laughs> that looks pretty great. Yeah, uh, look at that. You're right. It was like almost 10 years ago exactly. Yeah. So that was fun. Uh, before we talk about more books, we are going to hear from our next sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal. Join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. 
and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so moving away from zombies, what do you have for us? <laughs> I have a book that comes out today. <gasps> Get out of town. It is The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. This is historical fiction based on people who actually existed, and I am ashamed as a person who is Black and a librarian that I have never heard about this woman that this book is about. Belle Marion Greener was a Black woman and J.P. Morgan's personal librarian. Belle was very light-skinned and passed as white. She went by Belle DaCosta Green, saying the DaCosta was from a Portuguese grandmother of hers, which is why she was slightly olive-skinned. Belle's mother and siblings were also very light-skinned. Her father was too, but he was a prominent Black man, Harvard University's first Black student, first Black graduate, and he was also an attorney who was dean of the Howard University School of Law. He fought loudly and openly for equal rights for Black people. He is also the one who gave Belle an appreciation for books and fine art. Belle's mother, Genevieve, had different ideas. She decided that she and the children would pass as white to gain access to things they could not if they stayed being perceived as black. This is, of course, you know, like the early 1900s. They moved up to New York. They were from Washington, D.C., and Belle's parents, having very different views on what was best for them and the children, separated from each other. Belle got a job as a librarian at Princeton University, where she met and intellectually dazzled the nephew of J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan already had an extensive rare books collection, so he had a library built to house the collection he had in hand, as well as to supply a place for the collection to grow. He needed a librarian, and his nephew insisted he interview Belle. Needless to say, she got the job and was thrust into the world of fine art auctions and rare book dealers, which was, at the time, for the most part, the realm of men. So not only was she so incredibly careful with every single thing she did so that people would not find out her true heritage, but she was also trying to stand out and make a name for herself in a world where the expectations and respect for women was so incredibly low. This book is just full of extravagance and secrets, but there are definitely downsides. There's some anti-Semitism and racism, so be aware of that. I really loved this book. Belle is an absolute force to be reckoned with. She practically had J.P. Morgan around her finger. I'm so mad that this was the first time I'm learning about her through historical fiction, but I am so glad I read this book. There's a great historical note at the end where the authors talk about where some of the largest liberties were taken, and I appreciate that. It's The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. I'm looking forward to reading that one. Marie Benedict, most recently 
wrote, what was it? The Mystery of Mrs. Christie. I think the title, if I can say the title right, about when Agatha Christie went missing. That was something from the end of last year. And I look forward to reading this one. So for my last pick today, I'm going to talk about a book that doesn't come out until the end of September. But I am so excited about this book and I can't stop talking about it. And I want everyone to know about it so you're ready when it comes out because it's so freaking delightful. I think I talk about this book almost every day with somebody on the internet now because someone else will mention that they've read it. And I'm like, this, 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 this. So fun. It is called... The Matzah Ball by Jean Meltzer comes out September 28th, and holy cats, do I love this book. It is so delightful. You're going to love it. It's just charming, and I actually guffawed, which is not something that my species normally does, but it just, it made me laugh and laugh and laugh. It's about a woman named Rachel Rubenstein Goldblatt, and she has a secret. She writes best-selling Christmas romance novels under a pseudonym. Like, best-selling so good that she has a very fancy, expensive apartment in Manhattan, and she can work from home, which is really great because she has a chronic illness that makes it hard for her to go out. So she has this fabulous New York apartment, and she writes Christmas romance novels because she loves Christmas. You know, normally this wouldn't be a problem, but she is the daughter of one of New York's most respected rabbis. And her parents do not approve of her interest in Christmas. And, you know, she knows that they would not approve of her writing Christmas romance novels. So she writes them under a pseudonym. But I mean, like, she has a a room in her house dedicated to Christmas. Completely decorated. Tons of trees. Miniature trains. Like, keeps it locked. Like, it's like her secret. Her Christmas room. And so, in the beginning of the book, she's on her way to her publishers because her contract is up and she's going to sign a new contract and write some more Christmas romance novels. Except when she gets there, her publisher drops a bombshell on her. She says, eh, Christmas romance novels, not selling so well. We want you to write a Hanukkah romance novel. And Rachel's like, what? I don't want to write a Hanukkah romance novel. Where's the magic in romance and Hanukkah? Like, ugh, I love Christmas, but... It's either write a Hanukkah romance novel or don't write anything at all because they're not going to sign a a contract for more Christmas romance novels. So she's trying to decide if she's going to do it when she hears about this event called the Matzah Ball, which is this very swanky charity event that is held on the last night of Hanukkah. And she thinks maybe if she goes to the Matzah Ball, that's where she'll get her inspiration for her book. But there is a big problem with that. The Matzah Ball is the brainchild of Rachel's childhood summer camp love, Jacob Greenberg. Rachel and Jacob haven't spoken since they were like 12 years old when he broke her heart at camp, Uh, but she really, really needs some inspiration if she's going to write these books. So she swallows her pride and she asks Jacob for a ticket. Unfortunately, this event is already like oversold. There's no more tickets left, but he tells her that if she agrees to help get the event ready, like volunteer the week before the event, he'll let her in. Like volunteers can have a ticket. So she agrees, and then she starts spending more time with him, and some old feelings return, but then so does some more misunderstandings and hijinks, and, you know, will they get their, like, real-life holiday romance? But this book is so delightful. Rachel is awesome. She's really smart and funny, and she takes no guff. She also has something called myalgic encephalomyelitis, uh, which was called chronic fatigue syndrome for a very long time, but now is uh, not referred to that very often anymore because of the the stigma that comes with it. Uh, And this book does a really great job imparting information about that illness 
as well as having Rachel explain like what it is like for her to live with it. Um, and Meltzer also includes an informative select uh, section at the end of the book about the illness because, she, like I said, she herself has it. And I really liked the conflict between Rachel and Jacob because sometimes you read romance novels and it, and the thing that happens like has to break the couple up like doesn't feel real it feels forced but this was like really good and i also there's so many funny things to laugh at in this book which i can't tell you about but i can't wait to talk about them with people when they've read this book but there's just oh there's unruly children and a matzo ball mascot and jacob's bubby is so awesome and rachel has the best therapist of anybody in a book i think but if you love charming romance novels or you just like fun, this is a wonderful book for year-round. Uh, I do want to give content warnings for mentions of chronic illness, cancer, and loss of a parent. It is The Matzo Ball by Jean Meltzer. I am so excited for that book. I have a copy. I haven't read it yet. <gasps> but do it now. <laughs> I'll wait here. Okay. I'll be right back. No. Um <laughs> For my last pick, I have another book with poison in the title. This book also is out today. It is This Poison Heart by Kaylin Barron. I love this book so much. It is everything I want, except the fact that it kind of ends in a cliffhanger. So now I am desperate for the next book to come out. First of all, I rarely mention the covers of books, but this cover is stunning, and it features our amazing protagonist, Briseis. Briseis is literally a magical black girl. She lives in Brooklyn with her two adoptive moms, who own a flower shop. Since a young age, Briseis has had an affinity for plants. More than an affinity, actually. She straight up has magical plant powers. She can grow an entire rose bush from a single pistol, but she doesn't know a lot about her powers because she tries so much to restrain herself. It often makes her tired and dizzy anytime she uses it. When she is out and about, if she doesn't keep her powers shoved down, trees will lean toward her, plants she walks by reach for her. Only her moms, who she calls Mom and Mo, know about her powers, but they don't know much either, as I mentioned, Briseis is adopted. Because Briseis keeps her powers restrained, she also has no idea of everything that she is capable of, though early in the book she starts to discover something that I'm not going to give away because it already had me on the edge of my seat. As you can imagine, Having such powers is really distracting. She's grown apart from the only couple of friends she has, and her high school grades are not great. They're not even very good. On top of that, the rent is going up on the building where their apartment is, and the same building has the flower shop, and so money is really tight. Imagine Briseis and her mom's shock when an estate attorney shows up saying that Briseis has been left a huge home and everything in it and the many acres it is on. She has been left all of this by her birth mother's sister, Circe, who has died. Briseis and her moms decide to go check out this mysterious home in this tiny town hours outside the city. They figure it might be the answer to their financial problems. And also, out in the middle of nowhere, maybe Briseis can give her powers a stretch. 
big spooky home in a small town they've never been to? Recipe for weirdness, I'll tell you that. She makes some unexpected friends. She finds a secret garden, which only has more secrets. The house, too, is full of secrets to be discovered. I will also tell you that if you are a Greek mythology nerd, like we all went through that phase, right? And some of us are still in it. Well, you're going to love this. I want to talk about this book so much, but I don't want to give anything away. I just really, really love this book. It's the YA fantasy of my heart. It's This Poison Heart by Kaylin Barron. Ooh, I really want to read that one too. But I saw it's that you had claimed it, so I waited. <sighs> yeah, I'm going to read that real soon too. So those are our new books and old books and books that are in the future. <laughs> what are you going to read next? I'm still reading Dear Centaran by Akweka Mezi. It's, it's slow going. Like I have to chew on every page. And I'm also reading for the first time Dumplin' by Julie Murphy. Ooh. I, I keep forgetting that there's a movie of that, right? It was released on... On Netflix? I think so, which I haven't seen either, but first yeah. I'm like, oh, I want to I wanna read the book, and then, yeah. then we'll probably watch the movie. I read the book. I just I haven't watched the movie yet. I am going to read Dare to Know by James Kennedy, which sounds pretty intriguing. It's about an unnamed narrator who is the salesman at a company that has developed technology that can predict anyone's death down to the seconds. Uh, and then he breaks the cardinal rule and has it forecast his own death. And it, his prediction says that he died 23 minutes previously. Like, he, he's he been dead for 23 minutes. <gasps> uh, so, which, right, sounds bananas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to start that. But also, uh, I don't know how I feel about this, but also I'm really excited. The news about the new interview with the vampire TV series has me wanting to go back and read the books, which I have not read since high school. I haven't read any Anne Rice since high school. I mean, oh my goodness, she must have 20, 30 books since the last time I read her. But I read the first three Interview with the Vampire books and The Witching Hour and The Mummy and those naughty books that she wrote under another name. Uh, under A.N. Rokolor, yeah. the Claiming of Sleeping Beauty trilogy. Yes. Yeah, because like we all did in high school. <laughs> exactly. But I don't know. I like. I just am kind of like, oh, I want to read. So I think I'm going to spend this weekend reading some of Interview with the Vampire because I don't know. I <laughs> loved it when I was a kid. So a lot of people may not remember this, but there was a musical. I do not remember that. Uh, Lestat, the musical huh. with music by Elton John. What? And so when, before a show, before like a big show goes to Broadway, they usually do what's called previews, right. which they often happen, you know, Toronto or Chicago or San Francisco. So I saw Lestat, the musical <laughs> before huh. it went to Broadway. It was awful. <laughs> Oh my goodness. It was, it was so bad. And it was on Broadway for what, like two weeks and then it closed or something. <gasps> it was, yeah, it wow. had like, um, I can't remember the girl's name. Who's oh. the young girl vampire? The one that's played oh, by Claudia. Kirsten Dunst. Claudia. Yeah, she had like some rockabilly song. I don't know. It was, <laughs> it was wild. You're making this up. No, it was wild. Wow. <laughs> so I'm not surprised by the fact that there was a 
Lestat musical only by the fact that El- Elton John and Bernie Taupin did the music. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. In 2006. It says the musical yeah. had a brief run in 2006. Yeah, blink your eye and you'd miss it. Exactly. Oh my goodness. I had no idea. Like, I, I think wow. I still have my magnet I bought at the like merch wow. table. Though. Amazing. <laughs> there, are, I like Broadway musicals. Is that's a category I know very little about still that I would like to know more about. Don't tell me that because I have a degree in musical theater. I will tell you all about the musical. There's one that I want to <laughs> see. Like, there's one about chess, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, it's called chess, right? And then there's one. Is it just called Assassins? Which is like yes. famous, like that's when I want to see. I'm like, yeah, there's so many of them, and I usually end up loving everything that that I go to see, like the very few that I have seen. But yeah, so I wonder if I would have liked Lestat. I don't know. Doesn't sound like I really missed anything. <laughs> I, no, no, it's it's seared into my mind and not in the good way. So. Oh, uh, that was a whole lot of pop culture today and uh, some books. Books are good. And this was so much fun. I, I love doing this every week. Like, even when I'm having a bad week, I know that I'm going to get to talk about books and I'm going to sweat a lot. Still six years out, still total flop sweat every time I record this show. <laughs> uh, but that's OK. It's worth it. And Patricia, thank you for joining me twice this month. I know. It was so much fun. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, thank you. I enjoy talking with you as well. Thanks. And I also want to thank our sponsors. I want to thank our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com and tell us if you saw Lestat the musical. You can find us online. Patricia hangs out on Twitter and Instagram at the info file. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime... Happy Happy reading. reading!